Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face, and he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly, that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming. And our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready? Well, good morning, LEFC. My name is Jeff Travis, and I have the privilege of serving as the Connections Pastor here, and I'm thrilled to be able to be up here with you to open up God's Word and see what it holds for us today. So we'll be continuing our series titled Rising Before the Dawn by wrapping up Matthew chapter 24 and actually looking at the first of a number of parables that Jesus tells to his disciples about how to wait in expectancy for his return. So we'll be spending most of our time today in Matthew chapter 24. If you want to turn there, go ahead. Ushers will be bringing Bibles down. If you need one, feel free to slip up your hand, grab one of those. Or in the YouVersion Bible app, uh, under the Events tab, you can find LEFC and all of our texts uh, will be there today. So up to this point in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has been responding to a question that his disciples asked him back in verse 3. They asked him, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And to this point, the first number of verses here, Jesus has been giving direct commands or teachings to his followers on how they are to live. You'll see up on the screen uh, some of these commands. In verse 4, Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. In verse 6, see to it that you are not alarmed. Verse 9, you will suffer and be hated. Verse 13, stand firm until the end. Verse 16, flee to the mountains. 42, keep watch, because we don't know when he's coming. And verse 44, be ready. So with all of that instruction in mind, would you turn with me? Let's open up to Matthew 24, and we'll be in verses 45 to 51 this morning. So Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come home on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So right off the bat, you might notice that the literary genre of these verses is a little bit different than the sections of Matthew 24 that we've looked at up to this point. 
Here in verses 45 to 51, Jesus pivots, and instead of giving direct action points in his teaching, he actually tells a parable, a story, to illustrate how we can live with expectancy. He tells a story about a servant who's left in charge of the master's household, who ends up living selfishly, which results in horrific consequences. So as we dig into this text, would you pray with me? Let's pray for understanding and guidance and conviction this morning. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the teaching that it holds directly from your heart given to us for us to know how to wait for you when you return. We're grateful for the promise that you are coming back. So, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in our waiting, that we would make wise decisions, that we would live our lives to reflect you to those around us. So, Lord, give us understanding of a a hard text today, uh, one that is not happy sounding, but Lord, let us see the promises that are still held within it. In your name I pray, amen. Well, during my junior year of high school, I had a pre-calculus teacher named Mr. Shatovsky. Mr. Shatovsky definitely stands out in my mind. I don't remember most of my high school teachers anymore. I don't think I will ever forget Mr. Shatovsky. He had a very, very thick Eastern European accent and was one of the most eccentric people that I had ever known. Case in point, on the very first day of junior year, Mr. Shatovsky begins the class, sets the tone for the whole year by telling us he is going to make pre-calculus so much fun that it will be better than sitting at home alone by ourselves on our beds passing gas. (laughs) Yeah, he was just a really strange guy. (laughs) So, at some point during the year, Mr. Shatovsky gives us a pop quiz hands out the papers, and then walked out of the room. Now, if you've ever been in that scenario before, everybody's mind does the same thing. Wait, teacher's gone, we have a pop quiz we didn't know was gonna happen, we could totally cheat right now. But most, at least good students, end up staying quiet because you never know when the teacher's gonna walk back in. The door was wide open. We, We don't cheat because we know that we'll get caught, there could be consequences, um, well, for the most part. Not everybody, but for the most part. Well, about three minutes after Mr. Shatovsky had left the room, he came back in. But he didn't just walk back in, he literally like jumped around the corner back into the room and then just started yelling at us at the top of his lungs. Now, the room had been dead silent. We actually were being good high school students and not cheating at this point. But Mr. Shatovsky was yelling at us because we were not cheating. That doesn't happen. He told us, he then told us, For the rest of the year, if I give you a quiz and walk out of the room, that means you should cheat. And then he turned around and walked out of the room for the next 20 minutes. (laughs) Now, this story of this quiz is burned into my memory because this isn't how things are supposed to go in a high school math class. It's the exact opposite. We're we're raised to know that, that cheating brings consequences. We try to hide our sin or selfishness in that moment because we don't want to be caught. It's our human nature. So here in our parable in Matthew chapter 24, the wicked servant thinks he's going to get away with selfish living. He doesn't think he's going to get caught because his master isn't going to come back anytime soon. Wow, was he wrong. In math class, when you get caught cheating, you get a zero on the pre-calculus quiz. But when Jesus comes back, if you are intentionally and unrepentantly living selfishly, the consequences are a bit worse than a zero on a quiz. How about getting cut into pieces 
and sent to a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell. As we walk through this passage this morning, my intent is not to scare you to right living just because you don't want to go to hell. As a pastor, though, I am concerned that some of you here today have gotten lazy and are chasing worldly comforts, and your priorities reflect that. I love this church, and I want to challenge us to respond with grace-filled, respond to grace-filled gospel truth, what Jesus has done and is doing for you, with a desire to obey our Lord and let that drive our daily actions and choices, not legalistic obligation. If you've been here for any amount of time in the past few months, we've been preaching repeatedly on on expectancy or the way that we're supposed to live until Jesus returns. Verse 50 of here in Matthew 24 tells of when the servant is caught not living with expectancy. When that happens and punishment ensues, he is equated with the hypocrites. Now, it seems when we look at the context and look into this story a little bit, that this servant wasn't maybe always so blatantly selfish. I don't think the master of the household would have left him in charge of all the other servants and their daily lives if he wasn't a responsible servant at some point. He held a high leadership position in this house and clearly had a level of respect by the master to be left there with that responsibility. So with all that in mind, When the master comes back, catches the servant by surprise, finds this servant living so wickedly, he's shocked and he responds with force. The servant has been a hypocrite. He's worked hard and earned respect, but it was only outward. Inside, he was just waiting for the opportunity to present itself to use his power and authority for selfish gain. All along, the servant had actually been loyal to himself, not loyal to his master. So what does Matthew 24 tell us about unrepentant hypocrites? They're sent to hell. Oof. But wait, hypocrites go to hell? What if I'm a hypocrite? Is there any hope? One of the most common excuses that we hear today from non-believers about why they don't want to follow Christ is actually because of the church. They say the church is so full of hypocrites that I want no part of that. And they're right. This room is full of hypocrites right now. So are we all going to hell? The answer is no, but we're going to talk about why. We'll talk about sanctification in just a little bit. That term means it's the ongoing work of the Spirit in your life, making you more and more like Christ as you daily pursue Him. Part of that work in your life is the exposure of sin. Just like this servant that we've read about in our passage, We are all wicked, sinful people. Now, hypocrisy is a symptom of that wickedness, of a sinful heart. But we can submit daily, actively fight sin, so that when hypocrisy rears its head within our lives, we confess it and turn to Christ. So this morning, we'll be talking a lot about hypocrites and the punishment that lays in store for them. But I do want to make a clear distinction between ongoing, intentional, unrepentant sin and a person who is prayerfully ridding themselves of sin. So back in our passage, as I read this term hypocrite, I think of a very specific group of people in Scripture that we see a lot, the Pharisees. If we turn back one chapter, Matthew chapter 23, 
Jesus is actually talking to the Pharisees. And in the verses that we're about to read, you'll get a pretty good picture of why these Pharisees who are respected by the people who hold a lot of power are not huge fans of Jesus. So let's start with the first seven verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So, yeah, that's pretty harsh. Jesus says, they tell you how to live, but they don't do it themselves. But we're going to get into some other verses here a little bit further down in this chapter where Jesus is about to pull out the big guns. In verses 13 to 33, Jesus uses this phrase, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, repeatedly. This phrase, woe to you, is a warning that affliction and distress are coming. So let's look at verses 13 to 32. I'll skip a little bit in here because it does get long. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. In a couple verses down, he says, you blind men. Picking up in verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear as people, to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Ouch, that's pretty rough. And then, in one more verse, 33, Jesus says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, How long will you escape being condemned to hell? So just off of that, 
We are now over here in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they have heard him just absolutely obliterate the Pharisees and tell them, tell the Pharisees that they're going to hell. And now Jesus is saying to his disciples, remember that? Remember how I told you that the Pharisees are going to hell? Well, if you aren't living expecting my return and being my messenger to all people, if you're living for yourself, if you're living, treating others terribly, if you're partying your life away, guess who you're going to be hanging out with for eternity? Yep, those same Pharisees. And it is not going to be a party there. Jesus isn't holding back on the punches here. So what is a Pharisee? I think this is really important for us to understand so that we know how not to live. Pharisees were the, the religious leaders of the day. There was a few sects of these religious leaders, Pharisees being one of them. They were so well known for their hypocritical lifestyle that if you look up the word Pharisee in the dictionary today, this is what you get. Marked by hypocritical, censorious self-righteousness. Now, I have no idea what censorious means, so I had to look that one up too. And that says, a judgment involving condemnation. These aren't kind words. Essentially, being called a hypocrite is not a compliment. A few weeks ago, in his sermon, Tony referenced Romans chapter 10. And I want to go back there and read two verses that I think will help us in our understanding of this passage. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it'll be on the screen, says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So the Pharisees were really good at declaring with their mouth that they followed God. But believing in their hearts doesn't seem like it. You know the phrase, they can talk the talk but not walk the walk? That's a Pharisee. Romans 10.10 uses an and, not an or. We must confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, not either or. Back in Matthew chapter 23, amidst Jesus' roasting of the Pharisees, he says, For those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humbling ourselves requires us to know Jesus, to know what he has done for us, and understand who we truly are in relation to who he is. When we miss that, we fill with pride and drift towards selfish living. This morning, I want all of us to examine ourselves to find, expose, and repent of the hypocrisy in our lives. It would pain me so deeply for any of you listening to me today to think that you know Jesus, but because you haven't truly surrendered your life to him, you'll end up in hell. Scripture tells us that even the demons know who God is, and they shudder at that. But clearly, just knowing who God is is not enough. Many of the Pharisees truly believed that they were doing what God wanted them to do, but they missed it. Now, not all of them. In Acts 15, verse 5, we do see that some Pharisees ultimately did come to follow Christ. But there were the Pharisees who missed it, those who did not turn to Christ, they're not in heaven worshiping God for eternity. They're in hell with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. This should scare us. But there's hope. Hypocrisy is not the unforgivable sin. God is in the business of redemption. He's made a way for hypocrites to find new life in Christ, to be in paradise with him forever, worshiping him, rather than in hell with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Confess with your heart, confess with your mouth, believe with your heart, and you will be saved. Your Father wants you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy calls himself the worst of sinners. But he says what Christ freely gives is more than enough. Would you turn there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1? We'll read verses 12 to 17. So Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In Christ... There is hope for the hypocrite, for the blasphemer, the persecutor, the violent person, the ignorant, the unbeliever, the proud, the lustful, all this, the scope of sin, there is hope found in Christ. And this says Christ is immensely patient with us. What an amazing thought. Christ is immensely patient with us and gives us eternal life when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. So what does hypocrisy within the church look like today? What if someone prayed the prayer when they were six years old, but their life doesn't reflect Christ? What if someone shows up to church every single Sunday without fail, but Monday through Saturday doesn't really look different from their coworkers? What if someone lives a really good moral life, but is just exhausted from trying so hard? Is repeating a prayer as a child, going to church every Sunday, living a good life, is this the golden ticket to blessing and eternity in paradise? It has to be more. But do we live like there's more? We can repeat the stories of Jesus' life 2,000 years ago and say that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. But being a true disciple of Christ requires obedience that is motivated by gratitude for what he did for you on the cross. It's not just lip service and being able to say it. Now, hear me. No amount of good person obedience will save you. Christ alone saves you. But if you don't, you, but you don't get to just say a 30-second prayer and then put your feet up for the rest of your life. Remember our wicked servant? He said and did enough good things for the master to leave him in charge. But in the end, that didn't save him. Think of Jonah. He was God's prophet, but he didn't feel like going where God called him to go because he didn't want those people to be saved. So he ran. He was God's special messenger. He was clearly in relationship with God, but he ran, and because of that, God brought painful discipline on his life. If you really know Jesus, if he knows you, your life is going to look radically different from the world. Back in Matthew 24, when we look there, it says when the master returns, it will be good for the wise and faithful disciple to be servant to be found doing what he was called to do. It will be good for him. 
I can't imagine how awesome the good things are that our Heavenly Father has for His children. But when we contrast that with what lies in wait for the wicked servant, it is not pretty. Are you living for yourself and the things of this world, or for Christ and eternity with Him? Selfish living might seem really good right now, but later it won't. There is a much, much better way, and it involves faithfulness to the call on your life and submission to your Lord. Lifelong faithfulness and submission is not easy, but I promise you they bring a life full of joy, peace, grace, rest, hope, so many things. You don't have to earn anything. It's already been done for you. But it's easy to say a short prayer as a child and then for the rest of your life have no one know that you have ever confessed Christ as your Savior at any point. Is that really living as a disciple or is it living as a Pharisee? Pharisees could say the, most, the right thing most of the time. They lived like good people. But according to these verses, <clears throat> many of them are in hell. Please don't join them. So then, what does it look like to live as a wise and faithful servant? That sounds like a disciple of Jesus Christ to me. Our mission statement at LEFC is making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our desire and prayer for all of you who call this place home. But to make disciples of Jesus Christ, you must be disciples of Jesus Christ, not Pharisees. At LEFC, we define a disciple. We boil it down to four marks. Someone who loves God, loves people, lives truth, and proclaims Jesus. So two weeks ago, as a pastoral team, we got away for a short three-day retreat. And the purpose of that time was to take these four marks that we have and take them a little bit deeper, bring, make them a little practical. So leading into that time, our pastoral staff has been in the Gospels. We've individually, in our time with the Lord, been in the Gospels since about June. And then on our retreat, we got together and looked at each of these four marks and shared ways that we have individually seen Jesus or others in the Gospels living out, loving God, loving people, living truth, and proclaiming Jesus. We walked away with a lot, and we still need to synthesize that. But I want to bring up a few of these things this morning to give us a picture of what it truly means to live as a wise and faithful disciple. I don't have time to go too deep into this. After New Year's, we're actually going to be starting a new series for five weeks to look at the four marks of a disciple and this word oikos that we use. And we're going to be boiling it down a little bit more. It's going to be really good foundational stuff. But for today, again, what does it look like to be a wise and faithful disciple? Number one, a wise and faithful disciple lives with joy. Now, in all of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees that we can read throughout the Gospels, I don't see them as very joyful people. Instead, they're so consumed with holding on to their power and this fear of their image getting tarnished. On contrast, a disciple is joyful in all circumstances. Now, joy is not often our natural response to life's curveballs. But when we understand what Christ did for us on the cross and the promises that lie in store for us when we get to be with him, joy overflows. Number two, a wise and faithful disciple submits to God. Submission, not a word that we love, but an understanding of who we are in Christ means that we submit to our Lord because we desire to obey knowing that his ways are greater than our ways. Number three, a wise and faithful disciple invests in others sacrificially. 
Our natural tendency is always to look out for ourselves first. What do I want, need, and desire today? But instead, what, if, what would it look like for us to look out for what would be a blessing for others? What would draw them toward the Father's heart? Number four, a wise and faithful disciple is growing and sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit. Self-awareness is a really important character trait. Do you know what your weaknesses are? Are you aware of the triggers that pull you into repeated sin? Are you, working, are you prayerfully working to beat back sin, to repent of it and be more like Christ? Number five, a wise and faithful disciple pursues holiness. We read Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you proclaim that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart, you will be saved. If that is true of you, you are set apart. The definition of holiness. You are called to holiness, this absence of sin. Now, full holiness is not going to happen on earth. But sanctification, it's the process of becoming more and more like Christ every day. It's pursuing Christ and spurning sin. We'll talk more on that in a moment. Number six, a wise and faithful disciple has a passion for the lost. Do we truly care about the eternal state of those we love and every single person in the entire world? Are you more concerned about what your unsaved uncle may think of you if you shared the gospel with him than you are about the reality of him spending eternity separated from God? When we fall more and more in love with Jesus, passion for seeing others experience the freedom of the gospel should overwhelm us and drive us to stand up to fear and boldly proclaim him as we make disciples. And number seven, a wise and faithful disciple testifies of the Lord's work in their life. This goes hand in hand with the last one. Use your story. Every single story of redemption is powerful. You may not think that you have the most engaging testimony, but I can tell you what Jesus did in your life is astounding. What Jesus continues to do day in and day out in your life is astounding. You deserve to be in hell with the hypocrites, But Jesus saved you from that. Tell everyone that you can. Now, those last two can be intimidating. I know that. They all can. None of these are natural human tendencies. To live as a disciple of Jesus Christ means to set aside our own selfish desires and to live in obedience. Is it costing you something to live out the lifestyle of a disciple? If it's not, if you find it really easy to follow Jesus, maybe you need to check your heart. What areas of selfish living are you allowing to creep in to stand in the way of your relationship with the Father? So what is our response? Are you a Christian and living with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé? Are you prioritizing time with other believers for your and their edification? Or are you allowing your children's sports and extracurricular activities to drive your schedule so much that you're missing out on church week after week all season long? Are you pursuing the next rung on the ladder to achieve the next pay raise so that you can afford the next thing on your want list while all the while your children never get to hear you pray and read scripture with them? Are you enjoying the things built up in your retirement more than you're enjoying making disciples of the next generation? What are the patterns in your life revealing about your priorities? Living as a disciple of Jesus Christ will cost you. It might mean that you and your fiancé have to live a little bit tighter in the coming months before you get married, tighter financially. 
even though it would be cheaper than to move in together. It might mean that your child has to say no to that high-caliber sports team because you and they will miss too much church. It will mean that you become content with where the Lord has placed you today and order your priorities so that you can invest spiritually into your kids while they still live under your roof. It might mean not living for the vacations and the toys that you've worked so hard and now you can, but instead be available to younger men and younger women who need your guidance and your wisdom. Disciples of Jesus Christ are called to action. Jesus has a role for you, and when he comes back, he expects you to be doing it. Two weeks ago, when Tom Daly preached, he shared a quote by D.A. Carson that's too good to not share again. D.A. Carson says, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. The wicked servant was given a job to lead the entire household. He was supposed to ensure that the servants were cared for and fed. He had clearly earned this position that he was put into. The master trusted him and elevated him to lead the team. What is your role? Are you in leadership? How are you leading? Are you leading as a disciple or as a wicked person, using your power to abuse those left under your care? Now, I've seen this played out in my own life over the past two weeks as I've been preparing to preach this with you. My wife and I have two young daughters. They're three and one. I get every Monday off, and that's my day with my girls. Tegan, my wife, works full-time too, so Mondays is just me, Cece, and Ellie. Two weeks ago, Tegan had an evening commitment on that Monday, and so she didn't get to come home between work and going to that. So when she left at 6.30 a.m., Until I finished up the bedtime routine at 8.30 p.m., I was on my own. Now, I understand a lot of you stay-at-home parents are like, that's not a big deal, we do that all the time. I'm super impressed and grateful for stay-at-home parents, single parents, you do so much. But let me tell you, after 12 straight hours with a three-year-old, that person becomes the most annoying human on the face of the planet. (laughs) There is only so many times that you can congratulate them for their amazing jumping off the couch skills that requires you to watch them every single time. Parenting is hard. I find it gets really easy to be annoyed and put out when I'm tired and impatient with my girls. The next night, that Tuesday night, my one-year-old did not want to go to bed. I had to go into her room numerous times to try to calm her down and get her back to sleep. That particular night, she just needed to be held. As I sat with her in her room, exhausted and wishing that I was out on the couch watching a show with my wife, I started praying for her. In that moment, I was so convicted by my impatience and annoyance with my girls. I love them so much. God slowed me down and helped me to see to appreciate those moments of getting to hold little Ellie while she squirmed and kicked and fought sleep in my lap. My Heavenly Father has taught me how to love my daughters, but it comes at a cost, my own comfort, 
He, called, he has called me in this season to nurture and raise these two little girls in the fun and in the difficult times. The way that he loves me, despite my own repeated failures and hypocrisy, is how I'm to love my girls. I realized as I sat there that I was going to be preaching to you today about selfish living and hypocrisy as I sat there in my own hypocrisy. I'm so grateful for my Savior's love for me that I get to learn from him and parent with grace. Now, there's probably some of you here today who haven't figured out yet what that job is that God has called you to do. I want to challenge you, get with your brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and they can help you find what that calling is. In John chapter 21, Jesus tests Peter. He asks him three times if he loves him. Each time, Peter emphatically replies that he does, to which Jesus says, feed or take care of my sheep. Jesus is giving Peter a job to do. He knew that Peter was going to lead the church, so he asked him, do you love me? Remember, disciples love God. And because we love God, it overflows into all of our life as we live on mission to make other disciples. It's easy for us to rationalize away work because our salvation comes fully from the work that Christ did for us on the cross. Sanctification, I mentioned it earlier, is growing more and more like Christ. Sanctification, though, is not just what the Spirit is doing in and for you. You must be working too. That quote from D.A. Carson, he calls it grace-driven effort. Because of what he's done, we get to respond with joyful obedience. If you're sitting back with your feet up, coasting through what you think is the Christian life, you might not enjoy the next life. Again, remember that servant in Matthew 24. He was given work to do. He was earned a position of leadership, but when the master left and he was still gone, and still gone the next day and the next and the next it became easier and easier for that servant to neglect his responsibilities and live increasingly selfishly. When we lose sight of the return of Christ, it is easier to exercise selfish living one day at a time. As we close, we're going to allow for some time of quiet reflection, self-examination. There will be several prompts on the screen for you to consider and pray through. Or maybe you need to consider some of the, the priorities that I asked you to look at earlier. Confess these things. Maybe you need to talk and pray and process with someone. A few of our elders will be up front, another back in the encounter room. During this time, feel free to come talk with them, to kneel, come up front, whatever you need to do as you spend time with the Lord. You can work through these questions, think through what's getting in the way of you living as a disciple. Or maybe you don't know Christ yet. Maybe you walked in these doors hesitantly today. You think that the church is full of hypocrites and you don't want to be any part of that. I'm sorry for the way that the church acts sometimes, but Jesus wants you to be in his family. If you need to ask someone about Jesus to learn about him more, please don't wait any longer. So these questions. Where is hypocrisy present in your life? What do you need to confess and repent of as you pursue the Lord? Are there areas in your life, work, family, church, social, political, where you've been entrusted to step into leadership? Are you leading as a disciple of Christ or out of selfishness? And then faithful and wise disciple, the seven things I talked about, lives with joy, submits to God, invests in others sacrificially, is always growing, sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit, 
pursuing holiness as a passion for the lost and testifying of the world's work in their life. Where are you the weakest? Where do you need help? What are your next steps to grow? So we'll give you some time quietly to reflect, to come talk, to pray, whatever you need to do. The band will come up in a little while and lead another song to allow continued reflection during that time. I give you my life, I give you my trust, Jesus, for you are my God, and you are enough, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my trust. 
This morning, we actually kind of worked a little bit backwards through our text. So I'd like to finish with the first two verses that I read, Matthew chapter 24, 45 to 46. It says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him in doing so when he returns. My prayer is that you didn't just spend time in reflection and then walk out these doors and check off the box of church for the week, but instead that you go and continue to reflect and allow the Spirit to convict and bring things up in your life that you can repent of and turn to Him and live in the freedom that only the gospel has. So as you go today, I'd love to invite you to join us for some baptisms. We have a few people getting baptized after second service here in the lobby in the baptismal. Come hear their stories of how the gospel, how the work of Christ has radically transformed their lives. On your way, feel free to stop at the Global Fingerprints table. Join us in sponsoring these children and planting churches in Southeast Asia. Be blessed. See you next week.